Hi, have you been pulling apart your faith? Have you been deconstructing? Have you been doing it alone to the point where you are just so bent out of shape, t triggered all the time, and maybe just tired? Maybe your spiritual life used to be super vibrant and now it's a fucking drag because you don't know what to do next. You don't know what you're allowed to do or explore, uh, or you just don't know what questions you need to be asking because there's so much out there. If that's in any way you, I want to invite you to come hang out with me for the summer cohort. That's the Spiritual Recovery Summer Cohort for 2023. I've been doing these for almost three going on, like, I think three, four summers now. And every single time it just gets better and better. What we do in there is we spend 10 weeks unpacking what happened to us. We unpack the theology that kept us in and we start exploring new ideas and practicing better things that make us actually bloom and come alive. If you're ready to get over the spiritual trauma, if you're ready to get over your triggers, if you're ready to create a spiritual system and practice that works for you, meaning it brings you to a sense of peace, well-balance, and like just, you know, enjoying life again, come hang out with me. You can go to thekevingarcia.com slash cohort to find out more. Applications are due this Friday, so don't miss out your opportunity. Let's talk to you soon. I love you. All right, let's get to the show. You are listening to an Irreverent Media Podcast. Go to irreverent.fm in your web browser to find more dope-ass podcasts like this. Now on to the show. friends and welcome back to a tiny revolution a podcast about ordinary folks living revolutionary lives i'm kevin welcome back to the show i am so excited about this conversation about crying because <laughs> honestly i do it a lot i don't think we do it enough as a group of people as a all sort of stuff but uh i'm so excited about this conversation with ben perry aka benjamin j perry aka reverend benjamin perry uh, the author of the new book, Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. I just came out this past week, and in this conversation, we dive into the reality of like toxic masculinity, what being robbed of emotion does to us. But before I do that, let me tell you about my friend, Ben Perry. He's an award-winning writer. His work focuses on the intersection of religion and politics. Their writing can be found in outlets like The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Slate, Huffington Post, Bustle, Motherboard, and he has appeared on MSNBC, Al, Al Jazeera, and New York One. They hold a degree in psychology from SUNY Geneso and a Master's of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary. He's married to Aaron Mayer. They live in Maine with their brother and their best friend. They're the editor of the Queer Faith Photojournalism series, curator of an art exhibit of the same of the same name, and he's a passionate advocate for building a church that lives into God's blessed queerness. Uh, truly, truly, just what a wonderful conversation. Such a warm and caring individual, and I know that you're going to love this as much as I did. So please put your virtual hands together, grab yourself something to drink, and enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Ben Perry. Yeah, where are you in the world, first of all? You're up in, you're not in New York, are you? I'm not, I'm in Maine. Um, I live in, in the woods. I know, I uh, split my oh. time between between New York and Maine, so 
I do three weeks in Maine and then I make my little pilgrimage to the city and uh, do things with middle and in person and then I come back and I largely do a lot of our our things in the cloud and so I spend my time in the woods feeding feeding the birds I'm growing some apple trees uh, you know wow trying to live a little off trying off to get the that that path I'm trying to get chickens this summer and Yo, have myself a little so, homestead here in Atlanta we have like a, like a two-year plan to chickens because we started looking into chickens and then we were like, oh my God, chickens are a responsibility. <laughs> yeah, so, a uh, huge responsibility. And I have to go travel first. I need to go hike the Camino before I have chickens, I think. See, that's what we, yeah, we're like, okay, we need to like get our lives settled a little bit and we're, you know, focusing on the apple trees and some other things. And then we're like, okay, but next, next project is chickens. They're coming. The chickens for, are for sure. coming home to roost. <laughs> 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 I love a pun. I do. All right, Ben, how do you introduce yourself to folks? Like, say you're at a night. Everyone's cool, by the way. And someone says, <laughs> oh, hey, new person. What do you? What's your thing? How do you introduce yourself? Yeah, when I meet cool people at a party, I do not start with, I'm a minister. Uh, so, so I'll be honest about that. <laughs> same, I am a minister. Same. But uh, that's not what I lead with. I'm not like, oh, yes, I serve the Lord. Um, uh, I tend to tell <laughs> I people. I serve the Lord. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Have you uh, Have you met my friend Jesus? No. Um, uh, I tell people that I'm a writer. Uh, I like to talk about the, this this little book that I wrote on crying. Um, I also tell people that I do a lot of queer theology. That's my my end road into eventually telling them that I that I serve a church. Um, but. I find that if I just say I, I do queer theology stuff, people go, oh, ooh, in a way that if I uh, mm. tell them I'm a minister, they go, ooh. <laughs> I, want the, I, want, I want the good. It's the same thing here. Yeah, it's I don't I don't tell people off the bat that like I well, if I tell them that I work in recovering from religious trauma, it's like, oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. usually like the eyes get really big. And you're like, yeah, I know about that. I'm just like, do you need to work with me? <laughs> because it sounds like you do. <laughs> you, you probably do. Um, Uh, when you say minister, can you tell me exactly what that means? I know you just said you like, you work in the cloud, but like when you think of like the term minister, what does that mean to you? Because all those terms seem so lugubrious. Yeah. And so wrapped up in power and, uh, you know, hierarchical structures and all sorts of things that I'm trying to actively, uh, break apart and one of the things that I, I think is beautiful about queer theology is it is an invitation to destabilize these sort of rigid structures mm. of you know a minister is a person who you know tells people how to live or a minister is a person who you know has access to the truth capital T and is going to stand up in a in a pulpit and and tell you it <laughs> um I, <laughs> I like the metaphors of ministers I and mean, even like the metaphors of ministers as shepherd feels weird to me because it implies that other people are sheep. And I, I don't really love that. Right. That feels icky. Um, yeah, another, <laughs> and so another, I, I think, you know, of, walking, ooh. like walking with people is, is the best sort of metaphor for ministry that I try to sort of lean on in my own thinking about it. I try to be really authentic in the way that I show up in a space. I try to be honest about, uh, you know how what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing. Like this morning, I had a, a prayer call uh, with the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, who's the senior minister at Middle. Um, and we love you, girl. I just showed up, and I was just like, I'm not doing great today. 
today, like this week has been really shitty. Uh, it's it's really bad. People, like I just don't the spiraling cycles of violence that we find ourselves in uh, have me yeah. very off of my center right now, and I'm I'm not in a great place. And I read a little poem that I wrote that was just a little frenetic and all over the place and and real. Um, mm. And I think when we can show up in that kind of authenticity, it invites people to do the same. Because one of the things that I really can't stand is how all of us keep moving through the world uh, in this facade of normalcy. Like this is a like this is a, right. a normal thing to be moving through the world and just having people shooting each other all the time because they ring a doorbell or because they all turn the into the wrong driveway or there was a case in Florida of like these two people who were like driving next to each other and started shooting at each other from each other's cars and shot each other's daughters. I mean, like these kinds of stories happen every day, every day. And every you're supposed to just day. be like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Like, so I, I try to not say that and just show up and, mm-hmm. and be real with folks. And I think when we do that, it's an invitation to other people to name the ways that they're not okay. Mm-hmm. Because I don't really think any of us right now are doing particularly well. No, I just want to echo. I just want to echo your echo real quick. I want to piggyback on that, um, <laughs> as we say. But that is the damn. Like, I would love for all of us to have a moment where we are just like, none of this is normal. Like, I know, like, because what are you? You're you're mid thirties, like me, thirty three. Yeah, thirty three. Same. Oh my god, look at us, nineteen eighty nine babies. Yeah. Um, sorry, <laughs> but um. I think for like you and me, like Columbine happened when we were like in middle school, I think. Yeah. Maybe even earlier than that. No, middle school. And it never stopped. And so from a very, very young age, like 9-11 happened, Columbine happened, the Britney Spears and and Madonna kiss happened. Like that was all (laughs) in the same, same time period. And... It was almost just like there's like two continuums happening. There's almost just like our generation was learning how to grow into ourselves at the same time as there was immense violence also evolving at the same time. And watching the adults who are ostensibly, uh, you know, put (laughs) put into positions of power to do something about the violence do absolutely nothing. The other metaphor that I use, uh, you know, thinking about this is uh, climate change because a lot of my family actually works in climate science. And Mm. so from the time I was a very young child, I remember all of my family members sitting around and my extended family sitting around a dinner table and talking about, oh my God, it's so important that we we sign the Kyoto Protocols because if we don't sign the Kyoto Protocols, we're we're locking in a, a climate trajectory that's not sustainable. We're all, you know, we're all we're all gonna die. And then we don't sign the Kyoto Protocols. And then it's, you know, oh we well, we really need to sign the Paris Accords. Like this is, you know, I just watched this this unending cycle of the next report comes out the situation is even more dire we really need to do something now and then we don't do something and here we are you know 30 years later and i'm still listening to the same conversations about oh we really need to do something and uh we don't seem to be doing much of anything and it's and it feels like even for those of us like you and me like we get clocked as white dudes out in the world people with a lot more power it's it's almost like because like you know you and I are not in the aristocracy because we don't have the cash money because we don't have like I don't know the whatever it is like people it's because we're so 
emotionally traumatized. It's like I heard, yeah. I think it was Sadhguru said in a talk. He was like, "You want people to care about the earth, but they don't even care about their own bodies. They don't yeah. even care about their emotional life. They don't care. They don't care about themselves. How the hell do you expect anyone to care about somebody else when they when they think that they have to have a gun to protect themselves?" Yeah, and because this this con this you know constant threat legitimate constant threat and also the messages of constant threat that we should always feel constantly threatened which you know is a feedback loop that plays into mm. each other create this this unending dread that makes people disassociate from their bodies uh you know yeah. it's, it inculcates numbness and that is of course the point because the people who are in power mm-hmm. and would like things to remain the way that they are would like for us to be numb i think you know to to loop mm-hmm. into the crying book a little bit one of the things Which that is I like, that I was about to, I was about to go in there because I was like, <laughs> "You didn't cry for ten years, bitch. Yeah. You didn't cry no, for real." Which, I was first of all, so. I numb. don't understand. How did no one? How does not someone not cry for ten years? Well, so what happened to me like, was I, when I was a really young kid, I cried a lot, and then I uh, watched other kids get shamed and myself get bullied for being emotional, and I said, "Okay, well, I need to." not cry in public i need to only cry in private spaces and so then there was a time when i was in you know elementary school where if i really felt like crying i would either like in the moment push it down and not cry and then also you know find a you know either like go to a bathroom and cry or like more likely i would like cry at the end of the day in my room at home and then at the same time i was also uh, figuring out that i was queer and uh, you know, crying mm-hmm. is so thoroughly associated with homosexuality in men uh, because yep. it's a feminized and all things that are effeminate uh, are, are gay. Um, and I was not ready to face my That's own. bad, for sure. Yeah, I was not ready to face my own homosexuality. I was not ready to face my, my queerness. And I uh, started pushing it down even further. And so then by the time I was in, you know, fifth or sixth grade, I got so good at repressing any kind of rising emotion that I didn't cry at all. Mm. And that was an easy way to not deal fifth grade. with. Yeah. I would say by, by fifth or sixth grade, I would, I don't remember ever crying from the time I was in like fifth or, you know, I remember, I remember crying after nine 11, which was, I was in, I was in fifth grade and I mm-hmm. remember crying maybe a, a couple times after that. But yeah, by sixth or seventh grade, I did not cry. And, that mm. was just the, the numbness that I lived within from that time up until I was in seminary when I was 22. And Ooh, what a time for that to get unlocked. It's like, let me not only like discover the years of trauma that I have buried under all this toxic <laughs> masculinity that I yeah. have put on myself, but let me also have a full-blown crisis of faith while they're training mm-hmm. me to go into the clergyhood. <laughs> Well, and that that was how it ended up happening was we I had a, I was in a class and they, the professor was like I want you to think about the last time you cried and I realized that I couldn't remember that it was so long ago I had some mem- you know I had memories of crying as a kid but I couldn't remember the last time because it was probably something quotidian but it happened so long ago that I, I couldn't even recall it um but I mean the thing that happens is like the only way to really stop crying is to stop feeling like that's the way that you you get mm. there, is by not allowing yourself to feel. Because if we feel deeply, wow. we end up crying. And so what I realized when I was really mm. digging into that of oh wow I haven't cried in a decade was it, I haven't really felt in a decade. 
I haven't really been at all in touch with, I could sort of feel the shape of an emotion. I could feel like, oh, I am happy. I am sad. But mm-hmm. those emotions were all closer to this sort of numb baseline than they were to any kind of heightened sensation. And so I, I realized mm. that if I really wanted to, you know, come alive in any kind of real way, I, I needed to relearn how to feel again. Yeah. Ooh, you listen, if people aren't hooked on this book by now, I don't know. Because the, uh, as you were saying that, the thing that was coming to mind, uh, a former partner of mine the, at a very, very young age, like recounted something to me uh, about how he also just like, you know, my parents didn't know how to cry. And so I learned that I shouldn't cry. I have to take care of myself now. I like, you know, this is yeah. going to be a strong man. And there's so... I, especially in men i'm having this renaissance within my own work of like possibly getting getting into men's work if you can believe it <laughs> but because like there are so many people who identify as men queer trans cisgender i don't care who you are who yeah. do who believe that to be a man specifically means stoic means yep. unmoving means i'm a statue how did you start to navigate and like get into this thing? Because it says you embarked on an experiment to cry every day, which yeah. I think is ph- phenomenal. But also like, like how did you begin to break unhinged. that down for yourself? <laughs> like, what, like, but like, yeah, what a, <clears throat> what a weird and extreme thing to do. Uh, which I mean, you know, that's, that's first year of seminary right there, baby. Like I, <laughs> I was just like yeah. emotional Ex- extremism. Crying every day. Just, yeah, absolutely. Um, Crisis of faith. No, and so I mean, <laughs> in the beginning, I really had to like abuse myself into crying. So I would, I would picture things like my parents dying, and what I would say to them. Oh shit! And that was the level I needed to mm. think about. It was, it was funny because when I that first day when I was like, oh, I haven't cried in in more than a decade. I should probably look into that. That's that's probably not healthy. Like maybe if I'm going to try to be a, a spiritual leader, I need to understand why i have thoroughly extinguished a core human attention seminary students i want y'all to just get that right there if you want to be a fucking spiritual leader and you don't know how to get in touch with your own tears and your own emotion your own body how the hell are you going to help lead somebody else through that and here's another thing i just want to say this is my beef with seminary students it's just like if you don't have a spiritual practice right now and you're just going to class and writing your papers and then going to do your uh, internships or your chaplaincy stuff. If you don't have a spiritual practice right now, you're going to be, you're going to burn yourself out real quickly. I'm not going to say you're a shit pastor, but I'm going to say you're not setting yourself up for success. End rant. Back to you, Ben. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're entirely right. And I would not, if I had not done that work that I did, I would not probably still be in ministry because I would not have had the emotional and spiritual resources to actually and like to, to move through a world that is, as we've said, endlessly traumatic um, and to be able to provide mm-hmm. meaningful care in the middle of it. But anyways, looping back to my, uh, uh, <laughs> my spiritual, ex- my emotional to your experience. Um, yeah. So I, 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 uh, I thought it was going to be easy that's like the funny thing in my mind is I, I remember going to my room and being like, oh, I haven't cried in a decade. I should probably do that. I should probably like go cry. 
and I sat down. I'm gonna go cry real quick. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna. And I sat down and I was like, "All right, it's time to cry. Like, go, body, go." And it didn't happen. And so then I was like, oh, "Okay, well, I need to like, you know, let's let's like watch some sad things and stuff." And so I like w- started, you know, trying to like get myself. And so I would watch something and I'd be like, "That's sad." <laughs> like everything was just so locked inside <laughs> my head that like I just couldn't even get from that intellectual like appraisal of the world into like what am I actually feeling. And so mm-hmm. it took like hours that first day. It literally just took, I would just kept drilling deeper and deeper and deeper. And then finally I started really thinking about, you know, my own life. And, you know, if my parents died, what I, what would I not have? Because at this point I wasn't out to them. I, and so I really started digging into some of that mm. stuff that I just, that I hadn't dealt with. And it was that right sort of digging into those traumatic places that actually broke that that wall and allowed me to cry and that Mm. first time I cried oh my god I was just weeping for what felt like hours was probably I don't know it's probably 15 minutes but like (laughs) it felt it felt like it was never going to end and afterwards I felt incredible it was like something right yeah I was I was alive again and Mm-hmm. So then I, that's mm-hmm. why I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this every day. Uh, because I was a grad student with, you know, lots of free time <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah. and, and I, and, I and a lot good. of extra energy to, to vote to this sort yeah. of thing. I'm sure. And so then I started doing it. And what the, what the interesting thing that happened was over the course of those months, I just became a person who cried easily. You know, I went from mm-hmm. having not cried for a decade to all of a sudden after a few like in the beginning, the first few weeks, it really was I had to sit down, I had to try to really make myself cry, I would like watch sad things, I would, you know, but then after, you know, some some weeks and months, I would be in a class and somebody would be telling a beautiful story and I my eyes would start to well up or I would be in our chapel service and there would be a beautiful piece of music and I would start crying. Mm-hmm. I just was a person who felt again. Um, and so I didn't, after a while, uh, most days I didn't have to go home and like make myself cry at the end of the day because at some point during the day I had already been brought to tears. And so that's why like, I didn't mm-hmm. at any point, I, at some point I just sort of stopped because I was like, okay, I, I don't need to like go home and make myself cry because I'm just like <laughs> crying all the time now. Um, but it, I just totally rewired my emotions Mm -hmm. and it but it was it's hard because you you know those kinds of calcification of feeling is the product of years and years and years of conditioning and so our idea that we can just like oh it'll be easy to just like peel that back and just let go of all of that no of course not (laughs) you know these these traumatic responses take years to develop they take years to unravel Mm -hmm. and it's for some folks like it's like you know for like folks like you and me maybe who is just like tears are like naturally for me tears are like right there for me too like if something happens and it's just like uh and for for other folks like depending on what your story is it may take you a couple of tries to like begin the process of tapping into grief and tapping into that energy and being also willing to make your heart space wide enough for it to pass through, you know, because and recognizing that this is not just going to be a one time thing either. This is a lifelong meticulous love practice. That's what Trisha Hersey called Trisha Hersey calls rest practice. But I think grief is the same way. 
is lifelong. And it sometimes will take you, how long have you been not crying? Your whole life? Okay, well, it might take you, you know, 22, 23 years to get to a place. At least, give yourself at least that long. One of the other things that uh, in the course of doing interviews with people for the book that I kept hearing again and again is also the shame that so many folks carry about not crying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that's really it's, the, it's been the interesting response. A shame about is, not crying? Yeah. So I I get two things when I tell people I wrote a book on crying. Some people go, oh, my God, I'm huh. a huge crier. Let me tell you all of my experiences crying. And this is how this one experience <laughs> crying like changed me. And like this is it was, uh, you know, this is why I decided to go into my career or whatever. You know, I get these beautiful, beautiful crying right, stories. Right, right. And then I get people who say, I really can't cry. And I wish I could. I get that response a lot, way more than I thought I would. And when I talk to people and I Mm -hmm. sort of dig into a little bit, what I hear is that there are these people who had so much shame around crying when they were young so that they stopped. Mm -hmm. And now they're older and they recognize that they want to be more emotionally present. They recognize that this isn't actually a healthy way to live. And they have all of this shame now wrapped around not crying. And so... I, in some ways, like the the invitation that I have to folks, it's not like the the goal should not be go cry. Although if that happens, fabulous. The goal should be like unwrap that shame that you have around a full emotional life. Investigate why you have it. Try to explore, you know, your the presence or absence of your tears. Like the, it will tell you something. And the more you can sort of start to mm-hmm. dig into it and un, unravel that shame. The rest of it will come. Mm. Ooh, it's like you almost want to try to seek ye first a little bit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> seek ye first the truth. I all I think that's like you nailed it in that moment in that statement. Rather than trying to get all of your shit lined up, start with this one thing. And it's like we there's like the weird pressure like within wellness spaces now. And even I think those of us who like leave our traditional religious spaces where it's like, we're supposed to be like these perfect, totally together people now. And also be totally emotionally healthy. And don't you know, aren't you in touch with your spiritual life? (laughs) But you know, it's like people think that they have to get 10,000 things done at once. And it's like, tackle this one thing, touch this one thing, touch the, if you can get in touch with your inner soul, like, if you can get rid of that shame that's blocking you from the real you, man alive, does shit start to move. Well, and the beautiful thing is that it's a reciprocal process. That's one of the things I love about crying yes. is that when we do it, and particularly when we do it in the presence of others, it's an invitation to other people to name the ways that they're also not okay. I think so many mm-hmm. of us walk around with this sense that we are the only ones who feel the way that we do that everybody else seems to have mm. it together. And so when I don't, that must be a personal failing. When I am walking around with this unending dread or this feeling of grief or this this feeling of inadequacy or brokenness or whatever that thing inside of you that that makes it hard to, to come alive. And then you look at your Instagram feed and you see all these beautiful people doing beautiful things. And you look at, you know, your colleagues at work and everyone's like, I had a great weekend. We don't share those parts of ourselves that are the really tender places. And so when we are actually, when we cry, it breaks the silence and it invites people Mm 
mm. into that space where they can really name the things that they're carrying because they see somebody else and they say, oh my God, I'm not alone. Mm. You give them the, what is it? Um, the privilege of going second. Do you, have you ever heard that. that phrase? No, I love it though. Yeah, the privilege of going second. It's something that um, uh, someone else talked about. I think it was uh, B.T. Harmon. He had a blog called Blue Baby's Pink a few years back where he was like Southern Christian man coming out of the closet in his 40s. So like, you know, who's also like a well-branded and good writer. Um, but like it was that thing that he said, just like there was someone in his life that gave him the privilege of going second. And then he said, Kevin, that's also what you do with your work. And it's also oh. like, Ben, this is what you're doing with your book and your work. It's like you give, you're giving so many people the privilege of going second to say like, I think there's the worst part about, about crying and getting in touch with these kind of, like, you know, more blue emotions is that it won't kill you. That's yeah. the worst part. We, it's like, we, it's, there's a part of me that's just like, it's so heavy. It's going to kill me. I'm like, that's the worst part. You'll survive this and you're going to have to feel something similar later but it's not going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Mm. When you think about... Second, it's Oh, I was actually no, just going to say, on the, on the privilege of going second, it's something that I... I heard a lot from the children of immigrants who now have kids that they want their kids to have the privilege of going second. They didn't use that language, but it's a beautiful, succinct description of what I heard from them, which was that a lot of them grew up in families where they didn't, where their parents didn't frowned on crying and told them not to cry. And they look at that as an expression of their parents' love because they recognize that what their parents really meant was this is a hard world and we have not had the ability to cry and be vulnerable because we have had to harden ourselves to live within it. And so they were trying to prepare their kids the best that they could to live and survive in a world. And then some of these kids have now grown and are fortunately in levels of privilege and safety that their parents weren't in when they were growing up. And so they've been able to cultivate mm -hmm. that ability to cry for themselves. And what they want for their kids is to not have to go through that journey, to have that privilege of, yeah. of going second, to be able to just grow up with the knowledge that they can cry and they can be vulnerable, that they can be tender and it's going to be okay because they're still going to be safe. Mm -hmm. That's every dream. I would hope for at least like if I, I'm pro I would say I'm never having children, but I'm probably never having children. But if I did, like I always think about my dad was Mexican American and very similar, like hard world, joined the military at 17 and just was telling us that like life is hard, life is hard. And then when I came out as queer, I think there was like also like a level of fear and in it's him. Be harder. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So that, um, I don't know. I, I think something that I've learned at least for myself on this side is that like in my defenselessness, I am actually stronger in a place where it's like, I know that this world is hard, but there is what's harder than facing the shame or the pain that's coming in from out there is facing the shame and pain that I'm trying to keep within myself by trying to yeah. hold it together. 
that's what feels harder to me, at least in this moment in time. Well, and isn't that the gospel? Not to get all, all Jesus on it, but like, you know. Listen, God, bring it, God go for incarnated it. Incarnated def- not as a conqueror, not as an army, as a defenseless infant. As one who communicates mm. by crying. Hello, keep going, pull that thread. Keep going. But, but really, I mean, you know, God, God's incarnation, God's birth into the world is, th- is in a body that is incapable of language, the way that we all start out, wholly dependent on other people mm. for care, for protection, because that's actually what it means to be strong. That's what it means to change the world. That's what it means to know that none of us get through things by ourselves, that we start out mm. wholly dependent on other people for everything and the Mm. only way that we stop believing that we are wholly dependent on other people for everything is if we believe the lies that we're in it by ourselves and that the only way to get through life is to build up armor and to aggrandize ourselves into believing that we're you know autonomous units capable of of greatness in a solitary way when that is just fundamentally a lie. Yes. And that's also, I think like one of the big lies we need to undo as far as like being able to create systemic change in our country and in culture in the world, because of course on your own, it feels so overwhelming because on your own it is overwhelming but guess what you're not on your own you are a part of a beloved collective a you know uh what do we call it the cloud a cloud of witnesses if you will you've got a whole line of ancestors backing you up and me and you and also all these other people who are beginning to become awake and conscious that you can be spiritual and there are things that we can do in the world to advance this feeling of love, inclusivity, connectedness to the divine, to everyone. And when we get other people's needs met and then they're open to that, like it's dominoes, bitch. Well, and one of the things that I, I love about crying is that it is a tangible expression of that, that interdependence. One of my favorite crying Mm. studies Uh, It was this uh, research project that was done collaboratively with uh, like something like 45 different universities around the world in different countries. It was, you know, 40 plus countries and six continents. And they what they were examining was if you show pictures, if you show people who are crying, does that person who is seeing the person crying feel more likely to provide support? provide care to provide Mm. assistance to that person and what they found was that in every single country when people see someone crying on average they are significantly more likely to offer help because it's not a cultural thing if it was a Mm. cultural thing we would expect oh yeah in some countries people when people see people crying they're going to be more likely to offer help and in other ones they don't but it's not a cultural thing it's a human thing it's a how we were, how we evolved to care for each other thing. And so when we cry, yeah. it's actually an invitation into interdependence. Mm-hmm. And that empathy that it elicits in somebody else is an invitation to be in relationship. 
Mm. The thing that came to my mind just now is like, it is uh, the bodies. Uh, there's like, not I'm, I'm not I don't try to be like super dualistic. I'm just like between myself and my body. But you know, every now and again, I'm just like, if my conscious self is unaware that I need help, but my body is aware that my body needs help, he's like, all right, let me throw up the flare. Let me throw out the signal. Let me do something with this physical thing to signal to other people that I need physical help. Yep. It's the body's Incredible. rejection of the lies of isolation. Huh. It's the body's rejection of the lies of separation. Woo! Well, and I I'm think ready for one your of the reasons why crying is so stigmatized and suppressed. Because if you're in an office mm. and people are crying, then you need to confront why you are in this oppressive workplace that is making people cry. And other people mm-hmm. who feel alo- alone and isolated and overwhelmed, like they have way too much work or that they're living in an office culture that is not conducive to their thriving, all of a sudden they say, oh, it's actually not me. It's a systemic problem. This is not a personal failing. This is a system failing. And so yeah, the people who let's benefit that from like- oppressive systems would really like us all to, to feel that lie of separation, that feel that lie of isolation. Yeah. Because it absolves them of the need to do something about the systemic structures that are producing suffering. Who knew that you were going to take it all the way to into, into late capitalism too. Was it? <laughs> cause, cause that's, that is it. It's like almost like a, it's a, I'm trying to go back to pull on the strings that you were, you presented, but being able to understand that it is not our fault that we feel as distressed as we do, that like crying is a very normal response to the stress that we're feeling. That's pretty like being able to, to it's like that scene in, uh, what is that? Goodwill hunting. It's not your fault. It's not your yeah. fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. But re- re- really being able to recognize my little brother, for example, who thank God doesn't listen to anything I put out on the internet. Love you, Ryan, <laughs> if you're ever listening. But he and I were talking recently. Um, he's a typical cishet dude, kid, wife, job, working hard, and also has a second job on top of that, working harder so that he can like save up money and, you know, support, like, you know, all the things. And he's, he was so miserable and like was crying and it's just like I feel like I'm working so hard nothing's getting easier I'm just like that's because we're living in the middle of a recession and it doesn't matter if you ever work too hard you are not in the aristocracy you are not rich you are uh, you're a grunt unfortunately in their system and they don't yep. care about you you have to care about you enough to go to therapy you have to care about your kid and your wife enough to go start crying and excavating all the anger you have towards x y and z things and yep Lo and behold, finally, he's like on a track where it's like beginning to soften up into that. Like it's like the exact rather than being hard in this world, the answer for so many of us is you must soften so that you can fit through the hardness of the structures so you can squeeze out. Yeah. Well, because I think the other the other piece about these structures and especially as we're talking about capitalism is that, you know, that 
valorization of stoicism, of not feeling suffering, is also a product of whiteness. That that's Bingo. there's a reason why white culture encourages not feeling emotion. It's because then it's easier to make somebody else suffer and feel nothing about it. And also to be able to exploit people and not feel bad about yeah, and it. To and, not, also to and, and to also not, and not connect feel to bad. the way that your own, that you have also been dehumanized. That, that that is a dehumanizing process because it gets other other forms of dehumanization. And it's why, again, you know, to talk about the way that we suppress crying, you know, when they deploy tanks and tear gas to a Black Lives Matter protest because people are talking about the grief that somebody has died. That is a suppression of crying on a militarized scale they don't want you to talk about your grief so much that they are willing to tear gas tear gas you they don't want you to talk about your grief to the point where they are going to send police to your house and stalk you and like make you feel afraid to live in your cities damn damn (sighs) well everyone thanks for coming to church we had a great time (laughs) (laughs) it's like this i'm really excited for people to get their hands on your book because it's such a gift like like being able to see somebody's process and then also just like to like you know get the benefit like to realize like not only like on like a spiritual level this is a good thing but on like a physiological level this is a good thing on a systemic level this is a good thing that yeah. we get back in touch with these things. Um, what do you hope the person who's picking up this book walks away from, like walks away from your book with? If you, there's a, one lesson that you want yeah, them I mean, to take. The one thing that I sort of brought up earlier is just unraveling that shame that so many of us uh, carry. I hope that people who read it by sort of journeying along my, my journey to let go of some of that shame can help to start letting go of some of theirs. Uh, if it mm. makes people more in touch with their bodies and in touch with their tears, that will be delightful. And I just want people to see the way that the systems around us have been engineered to break a core human part of us. I, I hope that it's a, both a, a intellectual understanding of, of the way that structures have been built to deny our humanity and an invitation to reclaim that humanity at an emotional level. I could listen to you talk just for a long time. <laughs> like, Likewise. you're really, really gifted with your words. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. So, so lovely we are coming up on... on yeah, I think it's lovely to And I've also loved this little delay that we've got going back and forth. <laughs> my favorite. Um, I always end every interview time. I always give like extra buffer time for myself because I always love doing a Southern goodbye. Do you know what that is? Is that you say goodbye eight times before you, before you leave? Yeah, you say goodbye in, in the middle of the sanctuary and then you say goodbye in the foyer and then you say goodbye right outside the doors of the church and then you say goodbye as you're getting in your car and then you say goodbye as you're driving off the parking lot but you're still talking to somebody who's still standing in the parking lot who's nowhere near their car. Um, because you just got shit to say. Um, but uh, I always end asking... Oh, go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to offer a little benediction for my book. If that's a please, and then I have five questions I want to ask. Okay, I love that. All right. Well, so so first I'll. Do you want to do the five questions first, or do? Yeah, yeah. Let's do the let's do the five questions, and then I'll do the benediction. Yes. Okay. Cool. Benjamin Perry, are you ready to play just one thing five times? I love this. Yes. Okay. It's very very simple. There are five questions. They all correspond with the fingers on in a typical hand. So, Benjamin Perry. What's one thing you like about yourself? I play music really nicely. What kind of music? What do you play? I play banjo. I play guitar. I sing. Um, I play <gasps> saxophone some. And not Listen, in a professional is, way, but in a way that brings me joy. Good. I used to be a professional uh, musician and like killed killed the joy for me. So I had to... <laughs> Not, not not let that be my money maker, so I can continue to have joy in music. There you go. Um, what is one thing that you are proud of? I mean, it, just to cheat a little, I'm really proud of this book. <laughs> it it's been a dream since I this ever, book since, this book since I was a a little boy, and I realized that. Because I, I loved reading growing up. I loved reading so much. And then I remember somebody told me that I could write one. And I don't know how I didn't put together that these all came from people who also just loved books and wanted to write one. But it was like this, oh, my God, I can, I can, I can have one with my name on it. And now to hold it and to see my name on it, to be able to turn the pages, like I'm, I'm going to start crying just thinking about how proud I am that I actually took the time to write a book mm-hmm. and, and did it. Yeah. I'm proud of you too. It's no easy thing. It's, I just like, I'm finishing up like edits on, or like typeset edits on my second one. And I'm like, I remember why I didn't do this so quickly after the first one. (laughs) Um, Anyways, uh, what is one thing that pisses you off or like is a pet peeve? Uh, one thing that pisses me off. Just one? It can be really deep or it can be like Just one, Kevin? I know, I know. You have to pick just one. That's the game. Just one thing. All right. Uh, one thing that pisses me off is people who are rude to service industry workers. There is no sure Bitch. way to make me feel just the fire of a thousand suns than watching somebody be rude to a waiter. Oh, my God. There was uh, when I was managing a restaurant back in the day, uh, I was the manager on duty that night. And uh, one of the other people who was also a manager, so I knew that she could handle herself, like this customer was like really giving it to her for some reason. It was like late night, the order wasn't quite ready, blah, blah, blah. And I just checked and I said, are you okay? Do you need help? And she's like, no, I got this. I was like, okay, cool. You know. But then like another customer who was the same way started yelling at this guy. And they were like, I'm talking nose to nose inside of a burger joint at 9 p.m. on a Tuesday. I'm just like, y'all, if you're going to fight, go out on the street because like, I don't want to call the cops. One of the things like, I love about living I... in Maine is Maine is so small and it's so intimate and like knit together that like when the tourists come in and somebody is mean and rude, they will literally just be like, you're not welcome here. Bye. <laughs> no, like, oh, the customer is always right. Like, there's no attitude like that here in Maine. They're like, the customer comes in in the summertime, maybe. Like, you know, like the people who who live here year round, like we get a little more grace and stuff. But people like 
the tourists who are rude, they're just like, bye-bye. <laughs> You're not welcome at our restaurant anymore. Like, no. Peace. <laughs> there is, like, there is rules of decorum, you know? Yeah. You know, like, just... It's it's called don't be an asshole, and everybody that, right? knows what that means. Yep, I'm so like if you don't know what that means, y- you're you- the asshole. <laughs> might be, yeah. <laughs> Period. <sighs> okay. Um, what is one thing you're committed to? I am committed to building queer community. Uh, I'm trying Fuck to do yeah. that here in Maine. I'm trying to work with out Maine and some other folks who do queer storytelling projects, uh, especially in Fun. R- rural Maine where people can feel particularly a little bit more isolated and alone because there aren't as many people, which means there aren't as many queer people um, trying to knit community right. together and help queer folks know that they're beloved and, and connected. I adore you. Last question. What is one thing you want to do before you die? I already wrote my books. I'm, I'm good. I'm going <laughs> to... No. Um, Why well, no? I mean, like, is it what I, a small and achievable dream? Okay. You did it at by exactly. thirty three. I'm so saying I've, I've checked off the bucket list. Now I can go. I can go to take the the big nap. Um, no, uh, I before I die, I really want to travel in Southeast Asia. Um, it's just been like one of those places that's so oh, far away that like it's a really hard vacation dude. to like plan. Um, but I'm I'm gonna do it at some point when I have more time. I want you to do it ASAP. It's also on my bucket list to go back because when I was a missionary, I was in Southeast Asia. And there was a moment where one of the guys at the hostel, we had met the night before on New Year's Eve and we had like smooched secretly because you're not supposed to be a Christian and gay on the mission field, allegedly. But like I almost got on the back of the motorcycle with him and drove off just wherever we were going to (laughs) go because I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Here's an opportunity. This man is offering to take me with him. I was this close. It was. I was like, I'm gonna go eat, pray, love my life, and just ride a motorcycle through South. Particularly Asia. love to go see a lot of the temples. Um, that's like a, a thing that I would I really like to go and explore. Well, put it on the list. It's coming for you, Benjamin Perry. Um, I've loved this time. I liked your book. I like you, and. Um, Come on back anytime if you would like to either promo your shit or just chat about shit. I would love both of those things. But uh, yeah, I'll I'll leave you all with a a benediction of sorts. Please. I I wrote like a, it's a general nonfiction book. It's not written for religious audiences. But I was like, I told my editor, I was like, you know what? I'm a a minister. I leave people with a benediction. That's what I do. Um, Come on, so it's I, what so I do. I have to so be true to my I, roots. Uh, that's how I ended my book too. So this is a blessing for crying. If you've lost your tears, may you find them again. Know that you are never beyond redemption and worthy of full emotional life. May crying nourish you, a balm for the wounds you still carry, and a salve on fresh hurt. As droplets fall, May they water new growth, and may our collective weeping shape a world better than the one we inherited. May we attune ourselves to grief and hold the places we are broken, repairers of the breach. May cries long silenced be heard in full, yeast for our communal rising. Hold each other fiercely, not to build a future where every eye is dry. 
but one where we weep copiously from the joy and tenderness of living. Amen and shit. Amen and shit. Yeah. That's kind of like how I like it. I was like, I don't know how to end it for something. When I'm in a non-religious space, I'm like, I don't know how to like end blessings anymore. Um, that's beautiful, Ben. Seriously. Thanks. Yeah. Where do people find you on the internet, et cetera, et cetera? You can find me on, I'm mostly active on Twitter uh, at FaithfullyVP, uh, as that platform seems to be uh, <laughs> swiftly imploding. I'm uh, trying Girl, to do a little more Girl, come over to Instagram. Inst- it's funner over there. Yeah, I'm trying to do a little more Instagram. I'm also at FaithfullyVP on there. Um, so that, that's that's where you find me on the internet. I'm also a minister at Middle Church. You can find more about us there at middlechurch.org. Uh, we do lots of beautiful queer things uh, and uh, have awesome worship and stuff. The book is called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. It is available on May 16th from Broadleaf Books. Um, buy it wherever books are sold. Just go to your local bookstore, go yeah. to Amazon. Don't go to Amazon. But go, to indie, go to Indie, indie Books. Bound. Indiebooks.com. Indiebound, yeah. Um, try to buy try to buy local if you can. It's really, really helpful. If you're on the worldwide, you know, I get that if you live in a different country and you need to use Amazon, like, I get it. Do it. The, best, anyways, the most important we'll thing is you buy the books. If you want to buy it through Amazon, I'll forgive you. You have my pre-forgiveness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have absolution from that, that's the, the minister at for. Middle Collegiate. Yes. <laughs> this, this and only this Amazon purchase has been absolved. <laughs> Period. 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 That was my conversation with Benjamin Perry. If you want to follow him across social media, his handles are faithfullybp, and that's on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to check out the book, again, it's called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. Please buy it from your local uh, indie bookshop if you can. And at minimum, make sure that you leave a a review on Amazon and on Goodreads. It really does help us authors out. Uh, Benjamin, what a sweet time. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me. I can't wait to do it again. Uh, I think that's it. So let's roll the credits. As per usual, I wanted to say a big shout out to the team on Patreon for helping support this work. So if you loved this, if you want more things like it to happen, if you want to support queer spiritual content making, you can go to patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia and join up today. As little as seven bucks a month, it gets you access to our cool Discord channel. It gets you access to the replays of all my workshops. It also gives you some free stellar merch that just comes out um, on on the quarterly basis. So go ahead and check that out. That's at patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia. And seriously, if you've been benefiting from the show, I need to pay my bills. In fact, I'm a little behind on my bills, and I could use your support. (laughs) Y'all think I'm joking, but I'm not. I love you so much. Thank you for coming to hang out with me. You can follow me across social media at TheKevinGarcia. You can get my book, Bad Theology Kills, at BadTheologyKills.com. And until next time, my friend, take your meds, call your person, shake your ass a little bit. Be good to yourself. Make sure you eat. Sometimes I forget to do that, and it's just amazing how many times that my anger is just my hanger, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Anyways, I love you. Take it easy. We'll see you next time. Bye.